America's banking crisis is snowballing. Two U.S. banks have collapsed and now the crisis is hitting the rest of the world. Yesterday, the U.S. president tried to calm nerves. Joe Biden said the depositors will be made whole, meaning they'll get their money back, and that the U.S. taxpayers will not foot the bill for this. But what about the others? What about people in other countries who are also suffering the consequences? Let me tell you how big the fallout is. The failure of American banks has led to a loss of over $400 billion the world over. $400 billion. This is the loss in financial stocks worldwide, and the bleeding is still on amid a crisis of confidence. So how is India faring? How much are Indian companies exposed to this crisis? Well, there are some, and India has not been unaffected by all of this. Tonight, we'll discuss which companies have been hit and how much. But first, an update on what's happening in the U.S. The American banking system is still reeling. On Monday, customers were still lining up outside SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, the first bank that failed in this crisis. Government officials tried to contain the panic. Remember, American regulators have now taken control of the bank. They are the ones in charge, and they're trying to revive the bank. Yesterday, some officials stepped out to meet customers. They bought donuts and coffee and offered words of reassurance. You will be able to transact business as usual. Your accounts are safe. Your online portals are active. You'll be able to wire and do business as usual. So if you have any questions, feel free to let us know. So what's happening at SVB right now? The bank is running, but it's not fully operational. They've got a new CEO. Reports say customers have got access to their deposits, but they cannot make cross-border transactions yet. It will take a few more days for the bank to resume all its services. And this is bad news for some startups in India. Like I said, Indian companies have also some kind of exposure to this bank. Some Indian startups had accounts in Silicon Valley. And now their money could be stuck. How many companies are we talking about? More than 60, according to one claim. And how much money is stuck here? We do not have the exact figure, but each of these companies has more than $250,000 in their accounts, and out of these, nearly two dozen startups have more exposure, meaning at least 24 companies have more money in the bank. We're talking about more than a million dollars each. This money is stuck. And which companies are these? We do not have the names. They've not been revealed yet, because this disclosure will hurt them. Apparently, their investors are afraid. They're worried that if the names come out, it will hurt the companies in future fundraising. And who are these investors? The likes of Y Combinator, Axel, Sequoia India, Lightspeed, SoftBank, and Bessemer Venture Partners. These are all venture capital firms. Basically, they're big investors in startups, and this is a testing time for them. Imagine if one of these companies has to pay salaries in India with the money stuck in America or if they have to settle vendor payments here, or bills of any other kind. As of today, they cannot do it from Silicon Valley Bank. That's because the bank is yet to resume cross-border transactions. And this bank is central to their businesses. Like I told you yesterday, Silicon Valley was a top banker for America's tech industry. Also for many venture capitalists, many startups put their first checks in Silicon Valley. The past few days have been a nightmare for them. Here's an American entrepreneur sharing his horror story. The last 72 hours has been sort of an extreme version of that. I mean, not knowing whether or not the company you've spent five years building was going to go away overnight as a result of something 
as I think sort of unpredictable as a collapse of a bank was really hard. And here's the scariest part. Silicon Valley could be just the tip of the iceberg. America's banking industry at large remains vulnerable. That's because this collapse is linked to U.S. treasuries or U.S. government bonds. Again, we talked about this yesterday. Silicon Valley Bank had a lot of cash. It invested this money in government bonds. But last year, when the U.S. Federal Reserve hiked interest rates, it issued new bonds. These new bonds offered higher interest rates, and that made the old bonds less valuable. Their value declined sharply. And that's a problem for a lot of American banks because many of them still hold the old government bonds. They paid a lot of money for these old bonds. But now if they sell them, they'll not be able to recover that money. In other words, they're sitting on a pile of losses. Do you know how much? Losses worth a whopping $620 billion. This is what American banks are staring at. Over $600 billion in losses. But I must say here, these are unrealized losses, meaning they exist only on paper as of today. The U.S. banks still hold the old bonds. They don't have to sell them immediately. The banks can wait for the value of the bonds to go up. They can choose to sell them only when the value is up. That way they won't make losses. But if they decide to sell the bonds now, there will be suffering. And this is one of the big reasons why everyone is spooked. This is why investors are worried. They fear that the banks would take more losses. So they're dumping their investment. Shares are being dumped across the board. The result is this. Global financial stocks have plunged. Banking stocks from Japan to South Korea to Australia and, of course, America are seeing a sea of red. In two days, they have lost $465 billion in their market value. In two days. The next few days could be tough. The global banking system remains on the edge. Speaking of which, there may be a shift in Israel's equations with the U.S. The Netanyahu government is under pressure. Israel is seeing its biggest protest ever. And now the government says it could be America's doing. It's quite a charge. And it came from a top aide of the prime minister. He's given no proof to back his claim. But he set the cat among the pigeons with this one. Let me start with a recap of what's happening in Israel. Half a million people are out on the streets protesting. They're against the government's controversial judicial reforms. The new rules will give the prime minister a bigger say in picking judges. Remember, he faces cases himself. And this kind of power could give him undue influence over courts. That's what critics say, and people are protesting. Former military chiefs are warning about a possible civil war, but the prime minister is not willing to relent. Protesters say Israel is becoming a dictatorship and that they're out on the streets to protect democracy. Can Netanyahu survive this? 500,000 protesters turning up in a country of 9 million people, that's almost 5% of the country's population, out on the streets. It's unprecedented. These protesters are carrying the Israeli flag, chanting slogans like, Israel will not be a dictatorship. I'm here to demonstrate and to sound my voice against the dictatorship that they're established here in the name of the so-called law, judical reform. It's not a judical reform. It's a revolution that's making Israel go to full dictatorship. And I want Israel to stay a democracy for my kids, for my grandson that will be here, because Israel is a democracy country, and it must stay as one. It's a revolution, they say, and it sure looks like one. 
They're protesting against the Prime Minister's proposed judicial reform, the one that will give Israel's parliament, the Knesset, the power to overturn Supreme Court decisions with a simple majority. The government will be able to nominate judges. Let me show you the results from a poll conducted last month. Two out of three Israelis believe the Supreme Court should retain the power to strike down laws. That's 66% of all Israelis. Almost the same number of people want the existing system of appointing judges to continue. Almost 63% Israelis. But the government sees a foreign hand in this. Netanyahu and his aides believe it is the United States, Israel's top ally and security partner. Reports say Israel's government believes it is funding, the U.S. is funding and orchestrating these anti-Netanyahu protests. I have a quote from a senior Israeli government official. This is what he said. This protest is financed and organized with millions of dollars. We are following what is happening. This is a very high-level organization. Who finances the transportation, the flags, the stages? It is clear to us. This official was traveling along with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to Italy recently. Another official on the same entourage confirmed that the U.S. was behind the protests. And it's a big claim, though not a first for the U.S. to be charged with something like this. The Americans have a record of orchestrating regime-changing protests. But coming from Israel, this is serious. It could have serious ramifications. The U.S. has supported Israel for decades, military aid, intelligence sharing, ideological support. And now an accusation comes flying from Israel that the U.S. is trying to overthrow a democratically elected government. Either Netanyahu and his aides are very sure that Washington has a role to play here, or they're just trying to deflect attention and ease pressure. And if Netanyahu is indeed accusing the U.S. of orchestrating these protests just to deflect attention, the consequences could be severe. Remember, the Americans have been watching what's happening here. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visited Israel last week. You know what he said? He asked Israel's leadership to take steps to reduce tensions in the West Bank. Violence has been on the rise in this region. Israel has been conducting regular raids. Basically, Austin was asking the Israelis to rethink their approach in the West Bank. Then there's the U.S. envoy to Israel. He says Netanyahu should, quote-unquote, pump the brakes on the judicial overhaul. So there's a very visible difference here. And there have been some differences for a while now. Israel's accusation has the potential to widen the rift. Prime Minister Netanyahu is caught in a very tricky position. Reservists who form the backbone of Israel's military are threatening to not serve. And that could become a big problem for the Prime Minister. There are also fissures within the Israeli government, between the government and the bureaucracy. And the cherry on the cake, Israel's president has asked the Prime Minister to take the proposed law off the table. Clearly, the rift goes right to the top. And Prime Minister Netanyahu faces the challenge of a lifetime. Now let's talk about another disaster. U.S. President Joe Biden has dropped a bomb on the planet. Not the conventional kind, but a carbon bomb. He's approved an oil drilling project in the state of Alaska. It's called the Willow Oil Drilling Project. It's an $8 billion project. It's expected to produce almost 600 million barrels of oil. This will be done over 30 years, and this exposes America's climate hypocrisy. 600 million barrels of oil. Imagine the greenhouse gas emissions. 
so much to fight climate change. The project will scupper all the gains made by Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, not to mention the potential damage to local wildlife and, of course, the indigenous communities living near the drill site. Do you remember what Joe Biden promised not very long ago? Let me quote what he said. No more drilling on federal lands, period. That's what he said. So why did he change his mind? The justification is laughable and the double standards staggering. First, let me tell you about the project. This will be handled by a Texas-based oil firm called ConocoPhillips. In 2019, it made news, this company. It was ranked as the 14th most polluting company in the world. Now, this company will handle the Willows project. It will drill for oil and gas at three different sites in Alaska. This is in America's National Petroleum Reserve. It is owned by the U.S. government. Like I said, the project will yield close to 600 million barrels of oil over 30 years. Production is expected to peak at 180,000 barrels of crude oil per day. Let's pause for a second. 180,000 barrels a day is not insignificant, but it's also not a lot. Let me give you context. The US, Russia and Saudi Arabia have each been producing between 9 to 11 million barrels a day since 2014. Compared to 11 million barrels, 180,000 is nothing. This new project would bump US oil production by less than 2%. But that does not take away from the damage it, can, it could cause. Burning all those barrels of oil will release millions of tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. It would erase Biden's progress towards renewable energy. And then there's the Alaskan environment. This is what environmental groups have to say about the project. Community most impacted by the, this project is New Exit, and they are opposed to the project because of the numerous harms that it will cause them. I mean, they're already dealing with gas leaks, oil spills, toxic pollution from the existing oil and gas infrastructure that's already in, in the area, um, and this will only cause more harm. So the drawbacks are severe and the benefits questionable then why is Biden going through with the project? It's the usual justifications. More jobs for Alaska, development, billions added to the economy, the same old drivel. The latest justification is that it will ease energy prices exacerbated by the Ukraine war, which makes no sense whatsoever. It will take years for this project to take off. And remember the figure of 180,000 barrels a day. That's about 0.2% of the global daily oil production in 2021. How on earth will this affect oil prices? But maybe this is just the first step. After all, once the roads and pipelines are laid, what stops other companies from drilling in this remote region? And where does this leave Biden's pro-climate pitch? He put new bans on oil and gas leasing in the Arctic Ocean. He reduced the amount of land available for extraction in Alaska, and now he allows a drilling project. The logic doesn't add up. But the political math makes sense. Biden wants to run for president again in 2024. He has to woo neutral voters ahead of that. No matter how much progressive, climate-conscious Americans fume, they are not going to vote Republican. But opening this oil field will send neutral voters a message, a message that President Biden cares about reducing fuel prices, that he's looking out for the common man. And this cynical political game is going to cost the rest of the world. 
It also exposes American hypocrisy. The U.S. chastises India and China for using fossil fuels for growth. Then it turns around and does the very same thing. A Democratic Party lawmaker from Alaska said, and I'm quoting, Alaska cannot carry the burden of solving our global warming problems alone. This is what the leader said. But it's not Alaska alone. It's all of America. The U.S. has been among the world's worst polluters for decades. So this is not Alaska's burden. It is America's responsibility to not make things worse. And finally, it's time for Vantage Shots, images that tell the story. We're starting with Europe. Another migrant boat has capsized there. This one came from Libya. In the U.S., California is facing one weather event after another. Some parts of the state are facing floods. Rescue efforts are underway. Meanwhile, the East African country of Malawi is dealing with the aftermath of Cyclone Freddy. The British Arctic Survey has released footage of the A81 iceberg. It is as big as London. And finally, two Spanish engineers are working on the first private reusable rocket. We're leaving you with these images. Thanks for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. An Indian becoming a UK PM. Well, it's not like that we are going to get the Kohinoor back. <laughs> but at least India is on its way to the top. Huh? But Gautam sir, there's actually not much to celebrate. Why not? An Indian is ruling the UK. Indian leaders in third countries often tend to overcompensate for their minority handicap. For example, Sunak's Home Secretary of Indian origin, Suela Bravman, disapproved of India-UK free trade because it would encourage people immigrating to the UK and the majority of whom were Indians. Structurally, India and UK have passed baggage, but still hasn't been resolved. 
that is why ladies and gentlemen india needs to significantly temper its expectations from rishi sunak presenting vantage with me palki sharma a first of its kind global show with an indian perspective